Well, this week uh, we celebrated, um, if you, you may not have even known it, this, may, this day may not have been on your calendar, um, but we as a church on Friday celebrated four years uh, since we first started out as a little group. Uh, yeah, it's worth, it's, uh, that's a lot. You know, that is four years of, uh, of God's faithfulness in spite of ourselves. Uh, think of the change. Some of you have been with us uh, since that day four years ago that we started out. Uh, in a rented uh, conference room at a hotel in the South Bank. And just to think about all that God's done over these last four years, the people that uh, we barely knew at the time that are now dear friends, the people we'd never met at the time. And, uh, and quite honestly, over four years, um, it's really become a family. It's become a church. I can't imagine myself uh, worshiping in another church, pastoring another church. It's just been, uh, it's been a joy. It's also been a little bit of a wild ride. Right? I am, uh, I am grateful uh, that this marks four years of you not leaving and giving up on me. Um, this marks uh, four years of God not always, not always showing us exactly uh, what it was going to be like. or what it, I mean, think of how different uh, our church is now than we set out to start. If you are one of those people who likes turn-by-turn, uh, minute-by-minute navigation... Uh, you have probably been anxious at times over our last four years because at times it feels less like you've got an app on your phone telling us exactly where to go. And Can you hear me now? Yeah. All right. Well, um, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we ended a sermon series in John uh, last Sunday. We looked at the very last chapter of John. And so we're starting a new sermon series uh, this week, and it's one that I think is fitting for us as we are at the end uh, of that series in John, the end of Jesus' life and work, and as we celebrate this four-year anniversary of a church. We're going to look at God's design for the church from Acts chapter 2. You know, um, though at times it's felt like we don't know exactly where God's going, we've always known, in spite of the uncertainty, we've known that it's not up to us to figure out or invent what the church is supposed to be about. That God has a plan for his church, that in his redemptive plan, he wills to use the church to accomplish his redemptive work in the world. And so we're going to look this morning uh, at this whole series is going to be coming out of Acts chapter 2. Uh, we'll look at some other passages as well throughout. We've called our series an uncommon fellowship. It's one of the, the points of our vision as a church is that we feel called to be an uncommon fellowship. Right? We all know uh, the way that human community works in the world, that we cluster together with people who look like us, people who share our same assumptions and our history. We cluster together by political affiliation, by class, by race, by ethnicity. And from the very beginning, the church, by the power of the gospel, was meant to be an uncommon fellowship, a fellowship that didn't conform to that pattern of the world, but that looked like Jesus, offering his radical grace and forgiveness, his inclusion of all people, also his willingness to speak truth and to pursue healing. And so uh, we are going to look over the course of the next six weeks or so at what God's calling us to as an uncommon fellowship in Christ. And so, if you would, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our 
Our reading today is from Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. I'm back. In April of 2013, uh, USA Today ran an article uh, in their money section about Apple. Uh, This was about 18 months after Steve Jobs, uh, the founder and CEO, visionary behind Apple, had passed away. And the stock was in a bit of a free fall. The article says this. It says, the Apple stock crash is reaching a historic order of magnitude, shaking the faith of investors who piled on in large part because of Jobs' showmanship. At the time, uh, the stock was down 44%, and $291.2 billion of shareholder wealth had been lost. They went on to say that studies show that this kind of stock nosedive isn't uncommon when the CEO of a major company becomes ill or or begins to die, that when the person is so identified with the company, when the person goes, there's a lot of uncertainty about whether or not the company will continue on. The article goes on uh, to point out previous times in the life of the Apple company, when they were in turmoil, when the stock was starting to to turn, they could always look to Steve Jobs and count on him, his ingenuity and his vision, to kind of bail them out. One critic uh, in this article said, Apple is becoming just another stock, and the phenomenon of Apple is unwinding. You know, this uh, this is really how we expect things to work in the world. Right? We expect that when any, when any organization, any movement, when you take away the leader, the genius, the, the founder of the organization, we expect that there will be a drift, right? that maybe the company or the, or the organization will move off of their original vision or values. We expect that over time, corruption will sink in and it will become less of whatever it was, whatever magic there was that made it unique, that made it uh, so incredible. And you know, for for a lot of people, that's the story that they read into uh, the story of Jesus and the church, right? That when, when, when Jesus was on earth, there was grace, there was hope, there was healing, there was love, that Jesus, the, the founder of Christianity, was good. He was somebody that we want to identify with, that we want to be more like. But that after Jesus, his followers, 
uh, somehow got the message all wrong. That somehow something of that original love and tenderness and goodness uh, leaked out of the early followers of Jesus. And so the church was left as kind of a husk of what Jesus was all about. Right? In place of his grace, the church is believed to be judgmental. Right? In spite of his truth, the church is often perceived as being full of hypocrisy and pretending. In place of his service and his humility, we often see in the church people clinging to power and prestige. And so we can see, if we look at it honestly, at times a disconnect between Jesus and the church, between what he was about and what so often his followers uh, have been seen to be about. And yet, the passage that we read this morning, the passage that we're looking at over these next six weeks says that doesn't have to be the case. Right, This early church that's described um, here in these verses is one that retains so much of the grace that Jesus invested into them. We see a church that's celebrating with joy and gladness the grace that they have as forgiven sinners. Right? We see a church, a group of people living life sacrificially with one another, giving to one another. The rich giving to the poor, the poor serving the rich, people coming together as one family. In a, new, in a new kind of family, right? We see a church that's, uh, that's so committed to that grace and liberality with one another that their neighbors, the people around them, look in and say, hey, I wanna, I'm drawn to this. I want to be a part of a community like this, of a family like this. The passage says that, that daily God was adding to their number, not through their tips or their techniques, not through their flash or their pizzazz, not through their wisdom or their strength, but simply through his grace rippling out through them. And really the past 2,000 years in the history of the church have shown that God's grace, his gospel, really does work in and through his people as flawed and as broken as we often are to redeem the world, to change uh, the whole world. And so we want to look uh, this morning in particular and what it means to be a church that's grounded in the gospel, what it means to be a church that's grounded in the good news, that's what gospel means, simply good news, what it means to be a people that believe good news about God's grace in the midst of a world that's often marked by bad news and cynicism and pessimism, what it means to be people who find our life and our identity in the good news of God's grace is revealed in the gospel. People who not only make it the message uh, that comes out in the preaching, but who makes the good news of the gospel actually the, the core organizing principle for how we live life together, that it shapes the culture of a church, that it shapes the dynamics of our relationships, that it, straight, that it shapes our agenda in our neighborhood and in our city. And so what does it look like uh, to really and truly center our lives on the gospel? And so really in this passage we see uh, there are people's response to the gospel and then the kind of church, the kind of community that flows out of it. First, the message of the gospel as we see it here. You know, this is uh, the passage that we're picking up here is right on the heels of the first Christian sermon after the resurrection, right? So uh, Jesus is now ascended. He's gone back to the Father. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the disciples in tongues of fire. And then Peter... Remember Peter from last week, flawed and broken and cowardly Peter, restored by God's grace, stands up to preach in the center of Jerusalem at the temple. 
And miraculously, through this Holy Spirit, all the gathered crowd, everyone hears him in their, in their own language. In their own language, his words are converted into, into the language they can understand. And they hear the gospel and they understand it. They hear the good news, simply the, the apostles' message, the message about Jesus' death for sinners, his resurrection and power over death and shame and sin, the new life that's on offer through him. And so they ask Peter in, in chapter 37. It says they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest, Brothers, what shall we do? Right, in light of this good news, in light of this incredible good announcement, what do we do? How do we respond to it? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He calls them to repent. Uh, to repent simply means turn. It's a Greek word for turn, turn around. You say that your life is oriented towards one thing. You've been pursuing the things in your life that you feel like will give you meaning and purpose. You're pursuing the things in your life that you think that uh, maybe will grant you life with God, intimacy with Him. And Peter says, turn around. Turn from those old ways of life. Turn, to those, turn away from those old things that you thought that you had to have. And instead, embrace Jesus. Believe His story about his death and his resurrection. Believe that it's true of you. Repentance always is a, is a, is a coin with a, a heads and a tails. And the tails is the repent, turning, and the heads is faith. Turn away from what you had been pursuing and instead hold on to Jesus. Reach out to him and trust him to be the one who grants meaning and purpose and salvation to your lives. And they were cut to the heart. They realized that, that their, old, their old ways of doing things had to change. And so they turned. They did repent. And you know, the sheer amount of good news in that one verse, 38, is really kind of astonishing. And in such a short verse, he calls them to repent. But listen to what they receive. They get baptized into a new family, a new community. They receive the forgiveness of their sins, their old record, all of their sin and guilt and shame washed away. And they're given the Spirit, that same Holy Spirit, the same power, that came on the disciples at Pentecost is given to them. Right, All of this that they received by faith, you could summarize as saying, listen, the message of the gospel is that God loves you, that he's for you, that he's made a way for you to be with him and to have a restored relationship with him. His very presence, the presence of God by the Spirit is yours. He'll come and make his life with you and make you new. This, uh, this good news does move them to repent. It moves them uh, to change everything about their lives. You know, think about this message for a minute. Just two elements of it. You receive the forgiveness of sins, right? That God will not hold your bad record against you, right? That God will not look at your lives as full as they are of things that you're ashamed about, as full as they are of, of, of rules, commitments to yourself that you've broken, think the junk in your life, that God will grant you forgiveness of sins and he'll wipe all of that away and accept and receive you just as you are. And at the same time, he calls you to repent, to change, to be transformed. And he promises you the Holy Spirit the very presence and power of God to change you from the inside out. 
Right? Think about those two things together. Forgiveness, you are accepted by God just as you are, even if you never change. Right? Even if you never get any better than you are right now, even if those addictions never, never go away, right? even if the old habits, even if you die just as much of a mess as you are the day that you believe, you are forgiven. And you're given a new power so that you can change, so that you really can have a new life no longer marked by sin and addiction, bondage. That's the magic. That's the power at the heart of the Christian message. Right? That you're loved just as you are, but that God will transform and change you. That's what makes uh, the message of the gospel uh, so incredibly powerful. Right? Our whole lives we've thought that it wouldn't work that way, that if you told somebody you forgave them just as they are, if God told people that they were accepted just as they are, even if they never change, well, then nobody would change. Why would you change if God already loved you? Right? Keep on going with whatever you're doing in life. But God says, no, no, it's when you realize that you're loved, when you realize that you're accepted and forgiven, then you have the power to change. Then that love and that power actually can transform you. I remember sitting with a friend of mine who had just, uh, was in the, he was sitting in the wreckage that he'd made of his life. He had been caught uh, red-handed in some behavior uh, that all of a sudden his entire community knew about. There was nothing he could do to hide from it. There was nothing that he could do to pretend it wasn't true. He'd been caught red-handed. And he, against his better judgment, uh, he went to church. In spite of all the baggage that he had about church, in spite of the fact that he, he anticipated that, well, when Christian people find out about me, they're going to reject me, they're going to judge me. And that didn't happen. He went to a church and he found welcome and he found acceptance, he found love. But you know what he told me? He said, you know what was most powerful to me was that here was a group of people that accepted and loved me, but they actually believed that I could change. When I didn't believe that I could change, when there was nothing in me that believed that my life could ever be any different than it is right now, these people believed for me that the Holy Spirit really was powerful, that God's grace really was strong enough to change my addictive patterns, to transform me from the inside out. And then when I found that, I could lean into their hope for me for a while. And over time, through their acceptance and through their hope and through their love, I found myself actually changing. That's what it means uh, to be a gospel-centered church. To be a church uh, that roots our identity in the gospel, roots our identity in God's free acceptance and love of sinners, and his power to transform all of us. That's the power uh, to really, really transform us, to transform our lives and our communities. But notice what it says uh, about these disciples, about these early converts to Christianity. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right, the apostles' teaching is, is the gospel, right? It's the good news about what the apostles saw about the death and resurrection and new life in Christ. And it says that these, these, these disciples devoted themselves to the good news, right? They didn't believe it and then move on from it. 
They didn't receive the free offer of grace as though that was the front door into the church and then move on with their lives, getting on to more serious things. Right? They didn't graduate from the gospel and then go on to systematic theology and ethics and uh, the more complex things of the faith. It says, no, no, they devoted themselves. They centered their life on the good news of God's grace. You know, this is so important. I think in my life, uh, in my early life as a Christian, my experience of the church was that it was some, somewhat like somebody trying to sell you a timeshare, um, right? That they front load the offer with all the good news, right? Come along, we're going to do a free vacation. You just have to listen to a short presentation. Uh, come along with us, and uh, it's a great deal. You don't want to miss out. It's wonderful. But then once you get in, once you sign the papers, they say, actually, there's, there is some fine print, right? Some terms and conditions do apply uh, to this commitment that you've made. Right, that we use grace as the, as the kind of selling point for the church. But then when you get in, it becomes about all this other stuff. All these other trappings of religion, the, the way you have to dress, the people you have to hang out with, the way you have to talk, the church activities you have to be a part of. And to be a church grounded in the gospel means that we're people who never move on from the grace of God. There were people who never move beyond. Jesus' death for sinners, Jesus' death for us. But instead, we camp out there. We realize that there's enough there that we can spend our entire lives exploring it without ever fully plumbing its depths. That we'll never really come to understand the depths of the love of God for us. And so we camp out there and we refuse to move on. And we learn, uh, each of us, how to, how to believe it for ourselves, how to extend it to others how to really and truly be a church built on the gospel of God's forgiveness. You know, if you've been around the church for any length of time, um, it's virtually certain we're in the, we're, we are here in a, in a situation where we live in the American South. Um, we're still, we're in Florida, but we're north enough that we count as the South. Um, the, the chances are there is little chance that you come into this room without some kind of church baggage. Right, there is, there is little hope that in a room of this size, <laughs> that about 90% of us uh, come in here and as we start talking about the church and as you start talking about a message of grace and forgiveness and love and goodness, you think, yeah, but. Right, that sounds great. But, but what about my own experience? What about the judgment that I felt? What about the, the shame that I've been made to feel by people in the name of Jesus? Right, we've all... We've all got our stories and we all have our wounds about ways that the followers of Christ have not uh, loved as Christ loves. Right? We've all, we, we, we have all been through that. We've all been in churches that are completely orthodox in their preaching, right? where they love to teach and preach the message of God's grace. But in the way that they treat one another, in the way that we love one another, in the way that they practically work out their life together, it's not rooted in grace, right? It's rooted instead on performance and hard work. It's rooted in guilt and it's rooted in legalism. And so what the hard part is making the gospel not just the things that we believe, the things that we preach, but the governing way that we treat one another, the way that we pastor, the way that we lead, the way that we shepherd, the way that we care for one another when we're weak and when we're failing and when we're sinful. To let the gospel uh, transform that. You know, think about it. The message that these people had just heard, 
was a message of forgiveness. How can a community built on forgiveness become a community of judgment? Right? How can a community where literally the only thing that you have to believe when you get here, right? When you, if we, saw, we saw members take their vows to join the church a few weeks ago. The first vow, the first thing you say isn't, I promise to tithe, I promise to pay all my membership dues, uh, I promise to serve in the nursery, I promise to be a good Christian boy or girl. The first words out of your, your mouth when you join the church is I confess myself to be a sinner. I confess myself to be a sinner in God's sight, justly deserving his judgment apart from the sovereign mercy of Jesus. Right? How can a community that makes that its entrance right then become a community that starts to look down on anyone? Right? How can you start to think that some sinners are worse than other sinners? Right? Or that some sins are more untouchable uh, or more unlovable than others? When you just stood in front of a group of people now, we don't ask you, if you're thinking about joining the church, we're not going to ask you to list all of your sins in order, right? We're not, but the, the entrance right is to say, I am a sinner, just like everybody else. No better, no worse. But what I found the grace of Jesus, and I want to bind my life together with other sinners, with other people, believing that we can accept and love one another just as we are because Christ has accepted us. And believing that through the power of the gospel and through the power of the spirit, we together can get better. We can grow and we can change. And so let's be a community that makes the gospel uh, the very, very center of what we're about and what we do. So that's the first thing we see uh, in this young church is they made the gospel their center. The second thing we see is the gospel transforms them from the inside out into glad and generous people. I love that description of the community in verse 46. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Right, that the gospel actually changed not just what they believed in their minds, not just what they believed to be true, but the gospel transformed their hearts so that they became this, this great little descriptor, glad and generous. They became glad because they realized all that they had received from God, and they became generous because they began to hold their own stuff, their own possessions, that much more loosely in their lives. They became glad and generous. You know, we talked, uh, those of you who are uh, with me every day here at the City Rescue Mission, we talked at our last chapel, right, about how the Christian life is meant to be marked by joy. Do you remember that if you were in there? We talked about how the Christian life is supposed to be a life of joy. Right, the image that we have, this is, you may not have known this when you walked in, this is a Presbyterian church. And can we be honest about something? Presbyterians, that, that has not always been synonymous with joy, gladness, and happiness. Right, Presbyterians, for all that we're known for, are not often known for our exuberance or our joy. And it is to our shame. The Christian life is meant to be a life of celebration and joy. One, uh, one writer in Glasgow, in her biography, she's telling the story about her father, who's a Presbyterian elder. And she says uh, of this man, uh, indicative of Presbyterians, he was entirely unselfish, and in his long life, he never committed a single pleasure. It's an interesting description. <laughs> but the Christian life is meant to be a call to joy, to gladness, to generosity, and to celebration. 
You know, the first thing that we hear this early church doing is worshiping, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the gospel, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, right? This is a description of worship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread that we're just going to do here in a little while, the communion meal, the prayers that we offer both in, in spoken form and in song to God, centered on the teaching of the word, move towards awe of God, that a gospel-centered church should be a worshiping church. It should be a joyfully worshiping church. You know, is there anything more awkward in life, in all of human experience, than the scene of somebody, and you may have been in this place, uttering those three terrifying words, I love you, and hearing anything other than I love you back? Right, if maybe you've been there and you say, I love you, and your heart's racing, and you get up the nerve to say, I, I love you. And somebody looks at you and says, thank you. That's, that's very kind. Or if somebody, you say, I love you, and somebody says, yeah, you're, you're great. You're awesome. Christian worship is the I love you too, uh, return to God. It's the response of love back to the Father, who through the giving of his Son, through the giving of his Spirit, has shown and told the depths of his love for us. I love you. I love you too. Right? God's love is always primary. John tells us in, in 1 John, uh, right, that we love because he first loved us. Right? It's not the fervor of our worship or the, the depth of our passion that, that ultimately matters. It's God's love for us and that our response and love to him. And that's what happens here when we worship. It's we root ourselves in God's love, his forgiveness of us, his gospel. And we return it in songs and in prayers and in singing and around his table. We return his love in worship. And then we see, uh, we see that they extend the grace that they've received to one another. I love this description that they, these, these, uh, this early church is giving absolutely everything they have to one another, holding nothing back all of their hearts, all of their lives, and, it, and, it, and it's visible through the giving of their possessions. It says, if anyone had need, they sold what they had and gave to the one in need. This is a community uh, that's beginning to live life as a family. Right? The, the commentators all say the same thing about these verses, that what Luke is describing in Acts 2 is a family. Right? In the ancient world, uh, you felt an intense degree of loyalty and kinship with your family, right? With your, your blood relatives, maybe a little bit beyond that with your, your kin, your village, the people that, that you lived with on a daily basis. But the people, the, the people that you treated in this kind of way were family. And it's really, this, <clears throat> it's the same way today, isn't it? Right, if you think about somebody requiring or asking you to sell your possessions to give to them if they have need, Right, if that's a stranger on the street or somebody you don't know very well, that seems crazy. But if it's your brother, if it's your son or daughter, we say, yeah, anything that I have is yours. Whatever you need, I'll get it for you. Right, we treat family that way. And so what the author's doing here is saying, these are people who are treating one another, loving one another as family. Family no longer marked uh, by bloodlines, no longer marked uh, by relation or race or class. This is a family. Remember, this is the group of people that needed to hear Peter in their own language. These are people who have different languages, who have different customs, who are approaching the world from different directions. And yet here already, they're there treating one another as family. 
that what they have in Christ through this gospel is far more powerful to unite them than the things that divide them. And they are now living as one family. I recently read an interview with an Indian pastor. The church in India is a very, very small minority, and they suffer deep persecution. Uh, India is one of the most difficult places on the world today uh, to be a Christian. And in this interview, he said that he's, he has seen in his life the true miracle of the gospel. And he says that the miracle, the miracle that he witnesses, he says it's not healing, although they've seen God heal people, right? It's not the, the, the showy miracles uh, that you think about. He said even the Buddhists and the Hindus claim miracles, right? They can, they can look to, to, to things they can't explain. He said the miracle that I see in the church is that it, it has become a family across the caste system, right? Across caste and class and culture and language, that that's the miracle. There's no other religion in India, a, a, a country full of gods, full of religions. There is no other place where real reconciliation is happening in front of people. And he says it's the real miracle uh, behind the church and behind what he's seen. And that, friends, is what we are leaning into and hoping uh, for this church, right? That is an uncommon fellowship. We won't be identified by being a white church or a black church a rich church or a poor church, a, uh, a Republican church or a Democratic church, but that together uh, we will realize that what unites us together in Christ as family is far deeper than what the world might use to divide us. Right, in the gospel, God not only makes us his sons and daughters, but he makes us one another's brothers and sisters. Right, brothers and sisters who may look, talk, and act different than the brothers and sisters you were born with. Right, what happens in a family? You don't get to pick your brothers and sisters. Right? It, some of you are looking around, you might have picked different brothers and sisters uh, than the people that you grew up under a roof with. But you were, you were thrown in with one another because you were family. Right? Just because you happened to come from the same folk, you ended up in the same house. And in the church, we end up with brothers and sisters that we may not have chosen for ourselves, right? People that we have to work at coming to understand and learning to love and learning to hear. But because what unites us is deeper than what divides us, we persist in doing it. This gospel makes us a united family. It makes us quick to give and receive grace with one another. In this new family, you come to realize that you actually need one another, that you need this kind of family. You need this kind of place to show up when you've blown it and to receive grace and forgiveness, to find people who won't quit on you, people who won't let go of you or reject you because of your sin. Anne Lamott, a uh, great author, wrote this uh, in her great little book, Traveling Mercies. She went to a church called St. Andrews. She says, when I was at the end of my rope, the people at St. Andrews tied a knot in it for me and helped me hold on. The church became my home and the old meaning of home. That is, it's where when you show up, they have to let you back in. And they let me in and they even said, you have to come back now. But the church can become that kind of welcoming household that welcomes us in the midst of our brokenness. And then finally, this community becomes a place that extends that aroma of grace to their neighbors, that extends grace not just for those who are in the family, but for those who are outside of it. I love, love, love the final description here in verse 47. They were, having, they were praising the God and having 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They had a good reputation with their neighbors. They enjoyed the the, the good opinion and favor of the people around them. And the people around them were looking in and saying, what is going on in that community? I want to be a part of a family like that. I need to taste grace like that. You know, there's a there's a new barbecue restaurant uh, that opened in my neighborhood a few years ago. And uh, I, it's, on my, it's on the path that I run by uh, on a semi-regular basis. And, and there's something about a barbecue when it gets fired up, right? You, you're out there running, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a pretty runner. I'm not an effortless runner. I'm just logging and waiting for it to be over. And all of a sudden, in your nostrils, you go, oh, man, what is that smell? I want to be in there. I want to have what they're having. I want, to be a, I want to get in there because the aroma of what I'm smelling coming out of it makes me want to abandon this run and get in there and have some barbecue to stop trying to strip off some calories and pack on some good smoky calories. Right? That it lures you in. And that's what they're, they're, the, the picture of the church here is that it releases that aroma of grace into the streets of its neighborhood, into its city, into its place. And people smell and go, oh man, I want some of what they're having. Or it's like a party in your neighborhood and you hear the music and the dancing starts spilling out onto the streets. And you're looking out across the street and you're going, man, somebody's having a party. I wish I could go and listen to their music and party with them and dance with them. And they're there going, come on in, come join us. That the church is a feast of God's grace that invites the world to come and sit, sit with us and share in the feast. It's a party of God's grace that invites the world to come and dance with us and hear the music and live in it with us. You know, and maybe you have felt yourself to be on the outside of the party. You've been on the outside looking in and wondering if you could get in. Come and join us. Maybe you're one of those who carries so much wounds and so many wounds and so much baggage from the church. You say, I could never go back in. I could never pull up a seat again and hope that it could be different. I'll close with this. Uh, A woman named Carmen Renee Berry uh, wrote a book called The Unauthorized Guide to Choosing a Church. Um, It was inspired by her own journey uh, of having experienced uh, sin in the Christian church, having experienced judgment and hypocrisy and brokenness, having seen people that claimed to live a life of Jesus, life in Christ, but their marriages were a mess and they, they themselves were, were living lives that didn't measure up to it. And so she left the church for a while and she got stuck uh, in her own pride, in her own cynicism, in her own despair, kind of believing that she was better than everybody that she saw. And it was actually the very reason that she left the church, her disappointment uh, in the sinful lives of members that called her back into the church. This is the way she describes it. She said, I had overlooked one essential factor, that I am as finite and as flawed as everyone else. When a friend committed suicide, I realized that I too could become too cynical, too lost, and too alone. I needed a church, a family of believers. I needed to live in my faith and be honest about my doubts. Something happens there that simply doesn't when you are alone in prayer or on the internet. As much as I hate to admit it, 
My faith is enhanced and enlarged when in relationship to other less than perfect human beings. You see the flaws in the church. The church has flaws. Christians have their flaws. So do you. So do I. We all need Jesus. We all need him together. So let's go to him together. Let's give him to one another uh, when we desperately need him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to be a family that never moves on from our need of your grace. Help us to be a family that, that points one another back to your grace and your goodness when we need it. Lord, we are a people who are going to fail one another. We're going to grow disappointed with one another. Help us, Lord Jesus, to believe uh, that your blood, that your cross covers over uh, the sins of this church and this community. Lord, help us uh, to celebrate your grace. Help us to come, uh, as we will in just a minute, to the table of your grace and your goodness, to find satisfaction there, and then to invite our friends and our neighbors to join us uh, at the feast. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.